Well, good morning. You know, if you've been to a service here very many weeks at all, you know that I like to start with a story or an analogy, but this morning we're going to do something different. We're going to take the novel approach by starting with Scripture. So, the Scripture is this, Hebrews chapter 9, verses 27 and 28. And inasmuch as it is appointed for men to die once, and after this comes judgment, so Christ also, having been offered once to bear the sins of many, will appear a second time for salvation without reference to sin to those who eagerly await him. So there are two appointments that every one of us must keep, whether we want to or not. There are two guarantees in life, and they are death and the judgment. And the reason that these are a guarantee is because it says, it is appointed. Well, who appointed it? God did. If God appoints it, then therefore you can take it to the bank. And so these are two realities that we're not going to get away from no matter how hard we try. There are some things in life that are in flux. There are some things that are certainly uncertain, but not these two. These two we will not avoid no matter how hard we try. Now, these two realities are very scary for some folks, even Christians. But why is that? Why are so many afraid of death and the judgment? Well, I think, obviously, many of us are afraid of death because we fear the unknown, right? We don't know what's going to happen next. We can read about it. We can study it. But until you've gone through it, it's a little scary. And the judgment is scary for many folks because, let's face it, God's scary. I mean, go back to the Old Testament and you see that. You can't get around that fact. But why are these two realities so scary for Christians who are supposed to have assurance and supposed to have confidence? You know, we read verses like verses 30 and 31 in Hebrews chapter 10. For we know who, him who said, Vengeance is mine, I will repay. And again, the Lord will judge his people. It is a terrifying thing to fall into the hands of the living God. In our minds, judgment is anything but pleasant. The thought of standing before our Lord with the book of life open is something that terrifies us. Will we get to heaven? Or will he pull a lever that releases a trap door to hell? That scares us. We wonder. Judgment is scary for us and for good reason, because most of the sermons we've heard about the judgment focus on doom and gloom. They paint with a broad brush about how scary it is, and some preachers try to, try to scare us into submission with these hellfire and brimstone sermons, which may have their place. But what if we looked at it differently? What if we viewed the day of judgment differently? You know, so many times we turn to scriptures like Revelation 20, verses 12 through 15, and I saw the dead, the great and the small, standing before the throne. The books were opened, and another book was opened, which is the book of life. And the dead were judged from the things which were written in the books according to their deeds. And the sea gave up the dead which were in it, and death and Hades gave up the dead which were in them, and they were judged, every one of them according to their deeds. Then death and Hades were thrown into the lake of fire. This is the second death, the lake of fire. And if anyone's name was not found written in the book of life, he was thrown into the lake of fire. Or how about this one? 
For if we go on sinning willfully after receiving the knowledge of the truth, there no longer remains a sacrifice for sins, but a terrifying expectation of judgment and the fury of a fire which will consume the adversaries. Well, what about Matthew 25, 29 and 30? For to everyone who has, more shall be given, and he will have an abundance. But from the one who does not have, even what he does have shall be taken away. Throw out the worthless slave into the outer darkness in that place where there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. These verses are scary. And don't get me wrong, I'm not saying that we should avoid these verses for fear of being too negative. I think we should embrace them. I just think that maybe as Christians, we need to look at the judgment a little differently than we always have. I think what happens so often that as Christians, we personalize this. And we see Jesus talking to us, which he is. But we read these scriptures in view of Jesus speaking to us as if we stand condemned. Why do you stand condemned? I mean, you know Jesus. You're not a worthless slave. Why, you, why should you feel condemned as you stand before our Lord, both here or in the day of judgment? Now, if you're someone who is living outside of Christ, if you are lost, then you have every reason to fear the judgment. But even then, there's hope. Today, there's hope that even if you are lost, even if you're living outside of Christ, you can put on Christ, you can be in Christ, and you can have confidence on the day of judgment. But as Christians... Why do we fear? Maybe we need to embrace this concept of the judgment differently. What if the day of judgment wasn't all doom and gloom in our minds? What if we could be more confident? What if we actually looked forward to the day of judgment? I don't know about you, but I, by and large, don't like surprises. Some surprises are okay. I mean, I like, I like getting gifts as a surprise. I'm a large, if you're wondering. I like surprise birthday parties and things of that nature, but by and large, I don't like surprises. I want to know what's coming. I like to know where I stand with people, with situations. You know, as a coach, people would come by and talk to me sometimes, and they would say, you know, hey, I need to come by and visit with you. It's okay, but tell me what it's about. I don't like to be blindsided. If any of you have ever come up to me and said, hey, can I come talk to you this week? I always respond by saying, okay, what about? I don't like to be blindsided. I want to know what this is all about, right? As a coach, there was nothing scarier than going into a game and the opponent throwing things at you that you'd never prepared for, you didn't know, or you didn't expect. I don't like surprises. And on the day of judgment, I want to avoid any type of surprise, don't you? That is one day that I don't want to be surprised. When I die or when Jesus comes back, whichever one comes first, I don't want to be surprised. Do you? But the Bible talks about people who are going to be surprised. Even Christians. Even people within the Lord's church. You know, so often, you look at the scriptures, and I was reading just before I came up here during the time of the Lord's Supper, I was meditating on Matthew 28 and 8. The two Marys went to the tomb of Jesus, and they discovered it was empty. And after being shown that the tomb was empty, it says that they departed quickly with fear and what? Great joy. 
I mean, that kind of describes our sentiment sometimes about death and the judgment, right? There's fear, but there's great joy as well. Or in Malachi 4 and 5, where it's written, Behold, I am going to send you Elijah the prophet before the coming of the great and terrible day of the Lord. Great and terrible, right? We have mixed emotions about all this death and judgment. We have this, this bitter, sweet kind of relationship with it, I guess. I remember Walter Payton, the great running back for the Chicago Bears, one of the best to ever play the game. He was diagnosed with cancer. He didn't have very long to live. And one of his dear friends asked him, Walter, are you afraid of dying? He said, of course I'm afraid of dying. I've never done it before. And I think that describes a lot of us, that we have fear. But we also have great joy. As a Christian, we fear perhaps maybe not our death, but the way that we're going to die. But we have great joy knowing that this life is not all that there is, that there's something better awaiting us. Again, it's a mixture of emotions. I've had the opportunity to, to visit with Christians who are, who are about to leave this world, who are about to die. And many of them express that very thing. They are anxious, maybe even fearful somewhat. But they experience great joy as well as they anticipate what heaven will be like. I don't know if we can ever remove all of the anxiety that comes with the two realities of death and the judgment, but hopefully we can at least look at them differently this morning and not see them all as just doom and gloom. I don't want any of you to be surprised. I don't like surprises, by and large. The Bible talks about some who will be surprised. Some in the church will be surprised to learn that cold, ritualistic worship is just as bad as the man-made innovations they rail against. Some will be surprised to learn that being angry with their brother and refusing to forgive are actually salvation issues. Some in the church will be surprised to learn that gossip and slander and malice and arrogance are just as bad as murder and atheism. Some will be surprised to learn that spreading the gospel was an obligation, not an option. Some will be surprised to learn that seeking to restore a sinful brother or sister was not an option, but an obligation. And some lukewarm Christians will learn that that was not a desirable state for our Lord, that he will spit them out of their mouth. Some who claim to be Christians will also be surprised. They'll be surprised to learn that believing isn't enough. They'll be surprised to learn that a person can be sincere and still not be saved. And then I think there will be some, at least the Bible points out, that reject God who will be surprised. The atheist will be surprised to learn that there is indeed a God. The unbeliever will be surprised to learn that Jesus really was the Savior of the world. The good moral person may be surprised to learn that goodness is a counterfeit ticket to heaven. The day of judgment is a day in which I want there to be no surprises. There are a lot of good people that are banking on a false hope. I don't want to be one of those. I want to know where I stand before our Lord. But how do we get there? How do we have the confidence here and now so that when we meet those two appointments, there's no surprises? Where does the confidence factor come from? How can we approach this without being scared to death? Well, notice 1 John 4, 15 through 18. It says, whoever confesses that Jesus is the Son of God, God abides in him, and he in God. We have come to know and have believed the love which God has for us. God is love, and the one who abides in love abides in God, and God abides in him. By this, 
Love is perfected with us so that we may have confidence in the day of judgment. Did you notice that? So that we may have confidence in the day of judgment. Because as he is, so also are we in this world. There is no fear in love, but perfect love casts out fear. Because fear involves punishment. And the one who fears is not perfected in love. Fear is born out of an expectation of punishment. Why will you as a Christian be punished? Why do you as a Christian fear being punished? If you are in a saving relationship with Jesus Christ, what are you afraid of? Can you not have confidence that you will stand on the day of judgment? And that Christ will say, well done, thy good and faithful servant. What do we have to fear? You see, the difference maker in all of this, John says, is love. And I know that may sound all warm and fuzzy, but it's really that simple. I mean, that's what he says, right? By this, love is perfected with us so that we may have confidence in the day of judgment. Perfect love casts out fear. John even says that if you fear, then you're not perfected in love. So what in the world is he getting at? Well, you go back to verses 7 and following in 1 John 4, where he writes, Beloved, let us love one another, for love is from God, and everyone who loves is born of God and knows God. The one who does not love does not know God, for God is love. By this... The love of God was manifested in us that God has sent his only begotten son into the world so that we may live through him. And this is love. Not that we loved God, but that he loved us and sent his son to be the propitiation of our sin. Beloved, if God so loved us, we also ought to love one another. No one has seen God at any time. If we love one another, God abides in us and his love is perfected in us. By this we know that we abide in him and he in us because he has given us his spirit. We have seen and testified that the father has sent the son to be the savior of the world. You can have confidence on the day of judgment because God loves you. And believe it or not, it's really that simple. The confidence we have is because God loves us. God is love, it says. Love is, is finding its origin in God. All love finds its source in God. Verses 16 or verse 16 tells us that those who love abide in God. There is a double relationship between God and love. It is only through knowing God that we can know real love, and it is only through experiencing real love that we can know God. Love comes from God. We love God and we know God. God's love is most clearly demonstrated in His Son. It's not all that astonishing that we would love God because of all the wonderful things he has done for us. What is astonishing is that he would love us when we did nothing. When we lived in open defiance against him, he still loved us. He still sent his only begotten son. Have you noticed when you read through the Gospel of John, when you read through 1st, 2nd, 3rd John, have you noticed that John was big on assurance? John wanted the saints to feel assured in their salvation. Apparently, it was a struggle for them even way back then. He wanted them to feel confident in their salvation. He wanted them to be confident on the day of judgment. He's encouraging the saints by writing on the subject of assurance. God loves you, he says. And that is why you can be confident on the day of judgment. But there's more. He says it's not just about being a recipient of God's love, it's about being a donor as well. Human love is a response to God's love. We love 
others because God loves us. His love awakens a desire in us, or at least it should, to love other people. The love of God and a love for people are inseparably tied together. Notice verses 20 and 21. If someone says, I love God and hates his brother, he is a liar. For the one who does not love his brother, whom he has seen, cannot love God whom he has not seen. And this commandment we have from him, that the one who loves God should love his brother also. This is a love triangle. You have God at the top, you have yourself on one end, and you have others on the, on the other end. That's how this works. God is the unifying center. You love God, you love others as well. It's reciprocal. You love God, He loves you, He abides in you, you abide in Him, and that awakens a desire in us to, to love others. You know, it's as if John is saying that you prove your love for God by loving others. It's as if he's being crudely blunt to say, don't, don't say that you love God if you hate your brother or sister. Don't say that you love God if you're unwilling to forgive, because it doesn't work that way. It's like the little girl who was always fighting with her brother, constantly fighting about the slightest little thing. And one day, her father came upon a note that she had written to her little brother that said, I am so blessed to have a brother like you to love. And the father was moved to tears. He didn't think that his daughter could express such a sentiment to her little brother. And then he read the P.S. If you tell anybody about if you tell anybody about this, I'll twist your head off, it said at the bottom. And so maybe she has a little ways to go, but as Christians, a love for God permeates everything that we do, including our relationships with other people. Why do you think John would emphasize a love for your fellow man here? Why do you think that's so important? Well, I think maybe it had something to do with the fact that Jesus said the first and greatest commandment is to love the Lord your God with all of your heart, soul, mind, and strength. And the second is to love your neighbor as yourself. As we've talked about before, that is the essence of Christianity. I mean, when you boil it all down, that's really what it's about. Love God, love your neighbor. You do those things, you understand what Christianity is. And John is appealing to this, I believe. He's connecting the basics of Christianity to our confidence on the day of judgment. Genuine love for God will necessarily show itself in observable love toward others. 1 John 4, 7-21 shows us what love is, how it behaves, and why it behaves the way that it does. When we love like God loves, He abides in us, we abide in Him, and we have nothing to fear. When love comes in, fear departs. God in his wrath may seem scary to us, but we can take solace in the fact that he loves us so immensely. And this love swallows up any fear or anxiety that we may have. We don't fear punishment. We don't have to because God loves us. That love dwells within us. We show it to others. We are in a saved relationship with our Heavenly Father. And we face the day of Jesus' return with confidence knowing that there will be no surprises. Now, I think it deserves mentioning that John is not talking about a Beatles type of love. You know what I'm talking about? All you need is love. That's not what John is advocating. This isn't Taylor Swift love that you hear about on the radio. This is not love that is irresponsible. Because obviously, John is building on the things that he's already said. 
or that he's already written about. I mean, you think about it, John 14 and 15. He recorded Jesus' words, If you love me, you will keep my commandments. Or John 3, when he records about Jesus' encounter with Nicodemus. And Jesus very plainly tells Nicodemus that he must be born again of the water and the Spirit. Or 1 John 1 and 7, when he wrote, But if we walk in the light as he himself is in the light, we have fellowship with one another, and the blood of Jesus' Son cleanses us from all sin. John is not advocating an irresponsible type of love. He's not advocating love that has no responsibility on our part. But he is most definitely advocating a love for God that translates in a love for others, that does God's will, that seeks to please God in all things. So we don't fear judgment. If we fear anything at all, it's the fear of letting our God down. As we've talked about before, when we can view our relationship with God not as him being some ruthless taskmaster and we have to live up to the standard that he has set or he's going to strike us down. If we can change that view to a view of children trying to please their father, because I believe that's what the scriptures are painting for us and what a relationship with God should look like. We are his children. We seek to please him because we love him. Yes, we fear. I don't think we can ever make that subside. There is fear there. There is fear of what would happen if we don't follow him, the consequences of disobedience. But the motivating factor is love, a love for a father, and we want to please him so desperately. So we don't fear judgment. If we fear anything, we fear letting him down. Love is a verb. It's an action. It does something. And our love should manifest itself in the way that we live, the things that we do for Him, seeking to live out His will in our lives, to do what He has us to do. If you love me, you'll keep my commandments. What are those commandments? Well, we look through the Scriptures, we find those, and we seek to live them out so that we can be a loving and pleasing son or daughter. And when the love of God abides in you, when you are led by that love, it changes things, doesn't it? It changes the way you act. It changes the way you approach life. It changes the way you approach salvation and the judgment. Remember when Paul wrote about the fruit of the Spirit in Galatians 5, 22 and 23. For the fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, and self-control. There's a reason love is mentioned first. This is not a random sequence of things. Love is first because all of those other things are really just a manifestation of love. You can't really have joy in your life without real love. You cannot have true peace, as Clay talked about in his class this morning, without the love of God dwelling in you. When you are led by the Spirit, it produces certain things in your life. Love is first, and all the others are really just a manifestation of love. But again, this is not Justin Bieber type love. This is, this is the type of love we find in 1 Corinthians 13, as well as other places in the Bible. This is agape love. This is loving at the highest level. And what do we learn about the love of God? We learn two things. It's undeserved, and it's limitless. And if we want to imitate him and imitate his love, then we've got to be the same. 
By this, the love of God was manifested in us, that God has sent His only begotten Son into the world so that we might live through Him. And this is love. Not that we loved God, but that He loved us and sent His Son to be the propitiation for our sins. You can have confidence on the day of judgment if you dwell in the love of Christ. If you let the love of God dwell in you, let the love of God reign in your heart, let the love of God rule your heart and rule your life and be confident as you look forward to the day of judgment. At the close of Paul's first letter to the Corinthians, he writes these words. He says, if anyone does not love the Lord, he is to be accursed. Then he writes this word, Maranatha. The grace of the Lord Jesus be with you. My love be with you all in Christ Jesus. Amen. Do you know what the word Maranatha means? Some of you do. It means Lord come quickly. I have yet to hear anybody pray that in public. Maybe you pray it in private. Are you confident enough to pray that prayer? Because that would cure all of the problems that are going on in the world right now, wouldn't it? You look around just in the last few days of all the ills that are going on in our society and the despicable things that are taking place. And we pray for peace and we pray for all sorts of things, which is not bad. How many of us pray Maranatha? Lord, come quickly. Why don't we pray that? Because maybe we don't have the confidence that if he were to come back today, that we would be okay. Why don't we have that confidence? Well, there's a few reasons, probably. My charge to you this morning is to get ready. If you're not ready, what are you waiting for? I, for one, hope he comes back very, very soon. Do you? Let's just pray it right now. Bow with me. Dear Heavenly Father, we thank you. We look around us and we see all the horrible, despicable things that are going on in our country, in our world. We are truly a, a divided nation right now. There are so many just horrible things that are happening, so many things that are advocated, immorality at every turn. Here is our prayer, God, that your son come back. Maranatha, Lord, come quickly. It's in your son's precious name we pray. Amen. Do you have confidence? If not, then what are you going to do about it? Are you ready to study with someone to find out what it means to be a child of God? Are you ready to put on Christ in baptism and start a daily walk with him? Do you need to get your life right with God so that if our Lord were to come back within the next five minutes, you'd be ready to go? Think about it. Don't leave here without being prepared. Come now as we stand and as we sing. Break my heart.